Okay, very good. We are really excited. Again, I am, I am so excited about what God has been speaking uh, to me, to us recently. Um, I, this is the first installation of a series that I'll be doing in our Way Life Foundations um, weekly meeting. And it is, uh, the, the series is called, We Are God's Anointed. We are God's anointed. Um, some of you have, are probably not unfamiliar with the term anointed. Uh, you probably can think of a definition or two of what that may mean. But I think we probably, especially if you come through charismatic circles and things like that, misuse or misunderstand what it means to be God's anointed or to be anointed by God. Uh, there's a lot of um, language that's used in the church that we just use it. I call it Christianese. And um, we, we sometimes use this language without knowing what we're saying at all or even knowing the scriptures behind what we're saying. And, so, and, and, and then we're kind of surprised when when new believers or non-Christians come in to our, to our churches and we start using terms that we use every day and they look at us like we have four eyes, you know, or something, or three eyes. I should, I, that was not a, a, a ding on people that wear glasses like me. Um, they look at us strange because they don't understand. It. And you know what? I would suggest that we don't understand it half the time. So the question I have for us this morning that I want us to go through is what does it mean to be anointed? What does it mean to be anointed? And this is going to be, again, an intro as to where this is going. I want to define what this concept of the anointing really is. And then in weeks following, I want to start exploring then what does that mean for us? How does, the, how does, how does God's anointed perform their daily activities? Uh, how do, how, we who are anointed, what is it? What are the expectations on us, right? Okay. So to fully understand what it means to be anointed, we need to kind of look back as to where it originates. And so we're going to go back into the Old Testament. So I'm going to be going through, I have a lot of scriptures here. If you can't keep up uh, and turning in the Bibles, it's okay. Don't worry about it. Listen very carefully. You might want to jot down what the what the uh, uh, the, the chapter and verse is. Uh, if you're real nice to me, I actually might give you the file of my notes. If you want that, <laughs> I can make those available. Uh, as I was joking, of course, I'll give it to anybody that wants it. Um, give you the notes, so it's it's fine. If you can't keep up, I'm going to be moving fairly quickly. And if there's one that I really want you to read, I'll, I'll ask you to turn there. But we're first going to be going to Exodus chapter 25, verses 8 and 9. So let me read this quickly for you. Exodus 25, 8 and 9, and I'll be reading almost entirely out of the Christian Standard Bible. Verse 8 says, They are to make a sanctuary for me, so that I may dwell among them. You must make it according to all that I show you, the pattern of the tabernacle as well as the pattern of all of its furnishings. Okay, so here God is speaking to Moses. This is when they've come out of Egypt. They, and, and God is, is giving the Moses the Ten Commandments and all of these instructions uh, as, a, as a pattern of living for this Israelite nation that grew from Jacob uh, on down, uh, so uh, we won't get into it, but Joseph, you know, Joseph went to Egypt. He was sold into slavery, ended up in Egypt, and then he brought his brothers and his dad down, and then they all uh, eventually uh, became a great nation. So there's this nation called Israel, the Jews today, that was born out of slavery in Egypt, and then, of course, he raised up Moses to come, and we've probably all seen the Ten Commandments of Charleston Heston and all that kind of stuff, right? And he separates the water and, and all that kind of stuff. And they come out of Egypt and they go to a place called Mount Sinai. 
And, and God meets with Moses on Mount Sinai and he gives him all these instructions. And one of the instructions that he gave these Israelites, this Israel, the, the Israeli nation, was that they were to build a sanctuary or a tabernacle, right? What is a tabernacle? Well, uh, first of all, let's look at these words. The word sanctuary means holy place. Sanctuary means holy place. Tabernacle means dwelling place or residence. So the sanctuary or the tabernacle are almost synonymous in meeting. So it's a, it's a holy place for God to reside. That's what it's meant for. So he's saying here in Exodus 25, he says, you are to make uh, a sanctuary, a tabernacle. It's a place for me that I may dwell among them. Really important for us to understand. Say, what does this have to do with the anointing? We're getting there. The whole point of the tabernacle or the sanctuary is that God's physical presence would be among the people. And what, when they started moving around, so we, we know that they wandered in the desert for 40 years before they came into the promised land, this tabernacle, which was made of a, a tent, later it became a solid structure, right? The, salt, uh, the tabernacle that was built, the temple that was built in Jerusalem that no longer exists today. But, they, but this was a tent and they would move it around from place to place. And every time that they moved somewhere, they'd camp, they'd set up the tabernacle again and God's presence would be there. And Moses would go in at times and he would consult God and his physical glory would <laughs> remain there because God, and this is important for us to understand, God desires to dwell among his people. Amen. Some of you guys that have been with me a long time know I'm, this reference because I've used it many times. You remember that song, From a Distance? From a distance, da -da, right? God is watching over us from a distance. Remember that song when it came out? I hated that song the moment I heard it. The reason I, it's a catchy tune and is absolutely incredibly wrong because God has never intended to be at a distance to his creation. His intent was always to dwell among them and that goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden when the Bible says that God would walk in the garden in the cool of the day with Adam. The whole point was for God, and the word Eden, by the way, uh, in the Hebrew means pleasure, right? It was for us to have pleasure in the relationship we have with God and God to have pleasure in the relationship he has with his creation, mankind. So here now we have a world that has turned from God, but he raises up this people, this nation, to be an example of, of what kind of relationship he wants to have with his people, with all of creation, which is the Jews, the Israelites. And so he puts these standards in place. And one of them was, I want you to build me a tabernacle, a sanctuary, so I can dwell among them. This is our foundation. This is where we have to start. We have to get this context to understand what it means to be God's anointed. All right, so... Moses brought up the Israelites out of bondage in Egypt. God wanted them to set up this tabernacle where his presence would reside among them. Exodus 40, uh, verse 34 and 35 says this, the cloud, because he would move with them. In the day, he would look like a cloud. The glory of God would appear as a cloud. And at night, it would appear like a pillar of fire. So it gave them safety and, and, and shade in the day warmth and light at night how cool is that and it was one glory it did both both things all at the same time right the cloud covered the tent of meeting the tabernacle and the glory of the lord filled filled it moses was unable to enter the tent of the meeting because the cloud rested on it and the glory of the lord filled the tabernacle he desires for his presence to reside among his people. And in this case, with the tabernacle, it gave him a location. And by the way, when they set up camp, guess where the tabernacle was? In right in the center. Exactly. And all of the camp faced the presence of God. It was centered around the tabernacle, the presence of God. So you came out of your tent in the morning, you looked up, there was the presence of God, the cloud. You came out of your tent at night 
and you looked up and there is the pillar of fire, okay? Centered around it. He wants us to be, he wants us to be surrounding his presence. He wants his presence to be at the center of our lives. Okay, so let's move on. Why is it important for us to go into the Old Testament to understand the tabernacle and the anointing? Well, that's found, a clue for that is found in Hebrews chapter 8, verses 5 and 6. The Old Testament is a foreshadowing of what God would do in the New Testament. All of the, 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 the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, right? All of the, uh, all of the prophets, all of the Psalms and the Proverbs and everything is written points to Jesus and the gospel of the New Testament. All of it points to what God, what God did, did through Jesus. It's a foreshadowing. It's a type, okay? And in fact, Hebrews chapter 8, verse 5 and 6 tells us that explicitly. It says this. It says, these, these, the things of the, of the, the writings of the Old Testament, these serve as a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. See, there's an earthly reality that, we're excite, that we understand, but there's also a spiritual reality, okay? And the things that happen, especially the things that happen of the Old Testament, serve as a copy and a shadow, a foreshadowing of the things of, that happen in the Spirit, okay? These serve as a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. As Moses was warned when he was about to complete the tabernacle... So this is specifically talking about the scripture we just read. For God said, be careful that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. But Jesus has now obtained a superior ministry. And to that degree, he is the mediator of a better covenant which has been established on better promises. So let's break that down. Everything in the Old Testament is a type or a foreshadowing of what is to happen, what we find in Jesus and in the New Testament. With this in mind, the tabernacle is a foreshadowing as well, right? So the better we understand the truths of the New Testament, it, the better we want to understand the truths of the New Testament, it's good for us to look at the Old Testament right? Because in the Old Testament, God's presence was confined to a specific building among the people. In the New Testament, there is also a tabernacle, but it's a very different one, and it's much better. But we'll get to that later. Okay. So what we're studying in the Old what we're exploring in the, the, the tabernacle, the presence of God of the old, has very real specific implications for how we understand the presence of God in our lives today. And that's why we're looking at it. All right. So when God spoke to Moses to build the tabernacle, he gave them very specific instructions. Each instruction had meaning, all foreshadowing something of Jesus and the church and the New Testament. There were very specific instructions about how the temple must be anointed. And this is where we get into the anointing, or we are God's anointed. All right, now turn with me, if you would, to this one. So Exodus chapter 30. So if you can jump to you in your Bibles, it's the second Bible, excuse me, second book in all of the Bible. Um, Exodus chapter 30. And I'm going to go through verses 22 through 33. So it's a pretty big chunk here. Exodus 30, 22 to 23. Excuse me, to 33. So here we go. Verse 22. The Lord spoke to Moses, take for yourself the finest spices. Now, again, your translations might 
sound very different on this. Mine turns it into measurements that we understand today, but yours might talk about the original measurements that they find in scripture, but the equivalents are the same. Take for yourself the finest spices, 12 and a half pounds of liquid myrrh, half as much or six and a quarter pounds of fragrant cinnamon, six and a quarter pounds of fragrant cane, 12 and a half pounds of cassia by the sanctuary shekel, and one gallon of olive oil. Prepare these as a holy anointing oil, a scented blend, the work of a perfumer. It will be a holy anointing oil. With it, you are to anoint the tent of meeting. Okay, that's the tabernacle. The ark of the testimony. The table with all of its utensils. The lampstand with its utensils. The altar of incense. The altar of burnt offering with all of its utensils. And the basin with its stand. Consecrate them and they will be especially holy. Whatever touches them will be consecrated. Now, here he goes on. This was all the, the stuff used in the temple. Now, he's going to start talking about people. It says, anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them to serve me as priests. Tell the Israelites... This will be my holy anointing oil throughout your generations. It must not be used for ordinary anointing on a person's body. And you must not make anything like it using its formula. It is holy. And it must be holy to you. Anyone who blends something like it or put some of it on an unauthorized person must be cut off from his people. Now, God is serious about this oil, right? So much so, if you, if you, don't, if you don't do exactly what I say, you're cut off. You've got to leave the, 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 you leave the family. You're gone. You're cut off. You're excommunicated. You're out of here, okay? Now, have you know there's a couple things that we need to take away from this. First of all, he 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 repeats uh, multiple times holy anointing oil. He repeats again holy anointing oil. Things that are that are anointed with them will be especially holy, right? It's supposed to be considered a holy anointing oil throughout your generations. It's not a one-time thing. It's something that's going to continue on. It is holy and it must be holy to you. That means that you must consider this as holy as I do. Okay, is what he's saying here. God wanted the tabernacle all in all of, of what was used inside of it and the people serving in the tabernacle to be recognized as holy. So what's holy mean? Because it's repeated over and over, right? Holy means simply to be set apart. It's not common, okay? It's something different. It's in a different class. So if I would break this down a little bit, you've got your common, if we looked at our kitchenware, you've got your very common everyday kitchenware, right? You got the plastic tumblers and you got the, you know, the plates with the little chips on the side. It's the stuff that you don't care about. You use it if it gets banged up in the dishwasher or something, or one falls, no big deal. It's common use, right? But then there is, for some households, the fine china, all right? The real good stuff. When do you bring that out? Special, Special occasions. occasions. Not common, not everyday use. It's set apart for something special, okay? That is, in essence, the type of what holiness is trying to communicate. Now, if you look at 
today's world, there are things that are common, fallen, broken, right? Everyday use. And then there is the holiness of God, righteousness of God, okay? We begin to see a difference. There's a everyday common, and then there's special, okay? Holiness means to be set apart. It says in here, consecrate them. That means remove them, set them aside. Consecrate means to be set aside for a particular purpose. So the china, the special china, is it has it has a purpose. It's not supposed, it is not common. The, the fact that you take the china and put it in a very special cabinet where it's protected is the consecration. That makes sense? We're consecrating the china by putting it somewhere special. But the china is special because the china is special. China is holy. If I can use normal terms, right? So that's how we think about it. So God was saying, whatever you anoint with this very special oil that I'm naming, I'm telling you, it becomes holy and it should be consecrated. It should be set aside, okay? So the temple and everything in it had a very specific purpose. It wasn't a common meeting place. It wasn't a place that the average Joe is just going to go in and say, hey, you know, and I'm, I'm, eat their, their, their bologna sandwich. You know, I'm gonna, I just came and hang out at the temple, the tabernacle, to eat my bologna sandwich. No, 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 no. This was special. This was the presence of God. You don't do those things that are common. Okay? So everything in it had to be anointed. Even down to the utensils, we're talking about plates, we're talking about spoons, we're talking about cups, we're talking about what the, the term they use, lavers, right? These bowls, these big wide bowls, right? There's uh, the altar, everything in it had to be holy. How did it become holy? It was anointed. It was anointed with an oil, a special oil, right? So whatever that oil was applied to, that thing became holy and needed to be consecrated, set aside for a particular purpose. Okay. God was very serious about this. So that's why he didn't want the oil to be used for whatever. Okay. All things made holy for God was anointed with this oil and it was not to be used for anything or anyone who was common. So why oil? Why would he choose oil, right? Oil in the day is something that the Jews would have understood because it wasn't uncommon to use oil. It was, in fact, in the day, oil played a big part in their culture. It was used, uh, in, if, if you would invite, a Jew would invite uh, a person, guests over to their house, it was not uncommon to when they came into your house to anoint their head with a fragrant oil, not this holy oil, but a fragrant oil as a sign of honor in them, okay? In fact, you remember when Jesus said, hey, I came in here and you, did not, you didn't wash my feet, you did not anoint my head with oil? He was referencing that particular tradition, okay? But then Mary came in and she broke the oil over his feet and washed his feet with her hair and right? And with their, their tears, right? She, she don't put uh, the, the nard on him. And, you know, this, you see this, this happening. Uh, the preparation uh, props process of women to serve or be wedded to a king were prepared for a very long time, six months or a year with oil, very fragrant oils, okay? It was part of the preparation process. Um, medicine um, was used, oil was used very much in medicine for its healing properties, course in our family we know that all all very very well uh, because we use essential oils in our healing um, uh, medicine cabinet today right so oil is something that would be very common so for for God to say here's a special oil for a special purpose they would have understood that God could have used something else because there's no, there, was, there was nothing magical or special about the oil. It was the command of God and saying, look, if this oil is applied to this person or thing, it is holy. 
And I want you to recognize that. So that was the reason for the oil. It wasn't the oil was magical, right? It was meant for, it was an oil assigned for a particular purpose. That's what's important for us to understand, okay? And whatever it was applied to became holy before God. One additional example before we start moving into the New Testament is that not only was this oil used or was oil used to anoint uh, the priests, which uh, Aaron was the first and his sons were the first, but it was also to be uh, uh, used to anoint um, kings, right? So Saul was anointed as king originally and then David, okay? In fact, I wanted to look at that really quick because there's an important key here. 1 Samuel 16, verses 12 and 13. It says this. So Jesse sent for him. This would be David. Okay, and Jesse is David's father. So Jesse sent for him. He had beautiful eyes. This is David. Had beautiful eyes and a healthy, handsome appearance. Then the Lord said to, to, to him, to Samuel, anoint him, for he is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord came powerfully on David from that day forward. Then Samuel went out and went to Ramah. Really important. Really important that we understand. David uh, would be anointed not just as a king. And he was still young. He was a boy. He was the youngest of all, the bro- of all of his brothers. And he was the one that God selected to be anointed to become the king of Israel. But not only was he a king, he was a priest. He was a priest before God. And note, when he was anointed, the Holy Spirit came powerfully on him. This is important for us to understand because, again, remember types and foreshadows. There was to be receive that anointing was to receive the Holy Spirit. There's a connection between the two. Okay, so let's keep that in mind and now let's move as now that we have the context of the old, let's move into the New Testament and let's see what this is. Let's transition there. Why was the anointing of David and the Holy Spirit coming on him so important as a foreshadowing or a type? In the Old Testament, David was a type or an example of Jesus. So there is an actual study of scripture called typology. And it's, it's, what it means is we look at um, people of the New Testament or, or concepts of the New Testament and we look at the Old Testament and certain ones follow that pattern as a type, okay? So it's, it's a way for us to understand the New Testament better by what happened to certain people in their lives in the Old. Well, David, who served as a king and as a priest, was a type of of Jesus, of the Messiah, right? Why? Because he was a giant slayer. He was a warrior. He was a king and he was a priest. He was a shepherd. Jesus, the great shepherd. What was, what was David? What did it, we first found him. He was a shepherd of sheep, right? They had to go out to fetch him from the flocks to come get anointed as king. That's a type of Jesus, Okay. So as David was anointed and set apart to do these things, so too was Jesus. Did you realize? Did you know that Jesus had to be anointed to become what God intended him to become? Did you know that? It actually, uh, it actually says this. Now watch. Uh, this is a good one to turn to if you, can, if you can move there quickly. It's in Luke chapter 4, verse 17 through 21. Luke chapter 4, verse 17 through 
So this is Jesus speaking. It says, The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, Jesus, and unrolling the scroll, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has, say it with me, anointed me. Let's stop there for a moment. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me. Now, where in the world did that come from? Okay. Jesus has recognized the fact that there is a correlation between the Spirit of the Lord, the Holy Spirit, and the anointing. But he uses, again, he's quoting Isaiah. It says, the spirit is on me because I have been anointed. Because the anointing is on me, right? The anointing brings holiness, the spirit of God. Okay. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to do what? To... Preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll. He gave it to the attendant. And he sat down and his, all of the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed on him. He began saying to them, today as you listen, this scripture has been fulfilled. That was a prophecy. Remember, everything in the Old Testament speaks to the new. Isaiah prophesied how many hundreds, I don't know what the hundreds are, how many hundreds of years prior that Jesus would come and he would be anointed and he would receive the Holy Spirit to do something. Remember? The plates in the special china have a special purpose. He was anointed, not just because he was anointed. Hey, look, I'm holy. Yes, that was true. But he was anointed for a purpose. And he proclaimed, and God revealed it to us hundreds of years prior to this, when he said that that he was anointed to preach to set free, to proclaim, to give a recovery of sight, to free the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, right? The Spirit was on him because he was anointed. The anointing and receiving of the Holy Spirit are connected. Did you know that the word Messiah, okay, Jesus is our Messiah. Do you know what that means? Anointed one. That's what it means. Jesus, our Messiah, and, the, and all, of the, all of the Jews. The Jews today, who largely, there are Jews who believe today. They're called Messianic Jews, Messiah Jews, right? The majority, though, culturally have continued to reject. They rejected him in his day, and they continue to reject him as the Messiah. But they pray for the Messiah to come, and they use the word Messiah. Okay? Right? The Messiah, the anointed one, they're still looking for the anointed one. And it's so sad that they don't realize that the Messiah, the anointed one, has already come. But he came differently than they expected. And that's why they rejected him. The word Messiah literally means anointed one. And it is derived from the Hebrew word for anointed In the word Christ, Jesus Christ, Jesus the Christ, you may hear, right? The word Christ in Greek means the anointed one. To say Jesus Christ it is, is to say Jesus the anointed one. Think about that next time you want to use the, names, the Lord's name in vain. You're literally taking the holiness of God, Jesus Christ the anointed, the holy one, the one set apart, and you're using as a, as a curse word. <laughs> That's why it's actually in the Ten Commandments. It's one of the Ten Commandments. To take the Lord's name in vain, to throw it around malicious, like flippantly, to use it as common. 
That's why it's such a terrible offense. There's a connection between the anointing and the Holy Spirit. In fact, listen to this. Acts chapter 10, you don't have to turn there. Acts chapter 10, verses 38, excuse me, 37 and 38 says this. You know the events that took place throughout all Judea, beginning from, the, from Galilee after the baptism of John was preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power and how he went about doing good and healing all who were under the tyranny of the devil because God was with him. Note what was said there. God anointed Jesus with the Holy Spirit. Did you ever notice as we've traveled these scriptures how the anointing and holiness and the Holy Spirit got closer together? It went from... We, we see it, that's what we call progressive revelation. As we, the more you study something in scripture, you get more of a revelation of what it means. We went from, I am anointed, I, um, I am, the Holy Spirit is on me because I was anointed, all the way to, I was, or Jesus was, anointed with the Spirit. Mm -hmm. It's because they're synonymous. Mm -hmm. To receive the Holy Spirit is to be anointed. That's the conclusion that we need to make here, or that we're moving towards. Jesus was anointed because he received the Spirit. When did that happen? When did, when did that happen? Anybody remember? At baptism. It was the baptism. After he was baptized, heavens opened up and uh, the Holy Spirit came down in the form of a dove, resembling a dove at least, and it rested on him. And God spoke, this is my beloved son in whom I have well pleased. Right? In that moment, at roughly 30 years of age, is when Jesus started his ministry, anointed, he didn't start his ministry before them. He only started his ministry after he had been anointed with the Holy Spirit. And his, his ministry lasted roughly three and a half years. It didn't start before then. In fact, there's almost, there's very, very little written about Jesus until that point. And then the gospels are full of it, of what he did in three and a half years. Up until that, 30 years. The only thing you see, you hear about is his birth. And that one little incident that's recorded when he was 12 years old and he got lost because he was in the temple dazzling the scholars with his understanding at 12 years age of the scriptures. Until he was anointed, we don't have one recorded instance of him healing anyone, doing one miracle, not one. Other than he was just a really impressive boy at 12 years old. That's the only thing we know. Because with the anointing becomes the consecration. When he became anointed, he was set aside to only do what the father would tell him to do from that point on. That marked the beginning of his ministry. He was set aside at that point. And that's all he would do. He was up until that point, as we understand, a what? He was a carpenter. We know this about him. Did he do carpentry after that? I suspect not. Why? Because he was consecrated. He now had a different job to do. He had a special purpose. Not that doing carpentry was bad, but now it was common for him. He had been consecrated. He had been anointed and the Holy Spirit was on him. It was time to do the work that he was intended to do. That God had set him aside to do. Now the same way that God the Father has anointed Jesus with the Holy Spirit, so too does Jesus anoint us with the Holy Spirit. Chapter and verse, please. John chapter 20, 
21 and 22. Please turn there with me. Please turn there with me in your Bibles. Chapter 20, 21 and 22. John. There's a couple of these scriptures that I want, I would like, I'm going to ask you to turn with me because if you're one who marks up your Bible, which I encourage actually, and highlight, these are ones that you want to highlight. John 20, 21, 22. And Jesus said to them again, who's the them in this case? It's the disciples, okay? Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. Let me pause there for a moment. Pause there for a moment. This moment when Jesus appeared to them, this was after his death, burial, and resurrection. For roughly 40 days, Jesus would interact and teach his disciples after he had resurrected. Roughly 40 days. So he would just show up at times. He was really funny about this, right? So they'd be in a locked room because they're afraid of the Jews and coming to get them, right? Because there was a lot of, a lot of uh, things going on, uh, a lot of persecution already beginning, and they were afraid of all that. <clears throat> and people knew that they were associated with Jesus. So they locked themselves in the room, and Jesus would just show up in the room, in a locked room. They were there by themselves, and all of a sudden he would show up. I would, would love to see him that, right? I don't know. Did he just sort of like walk out of a dark, dark corner? Did he just sort of like it's lit up like this, and all of a sudden, bing, he's there like in the cartoons, right, with a, like a yellow, a yellow thing around him or whatever. Like how did he just show up, right? But he just shows up, and I think that's so cool because I think Jesus was actually funny. <laughs> I think that Jesus actually had a sense of humor. A lot of things that he talks about and the parables that he uses are actually comical. We don't get the comedy because it's translated into English, but I think if we heard it in the original Aramaic or, Aramaic or something, I think we probably would laugh at some of those things and his mannerisms. I think he was funny, and I think he was just showing up in the middle of a room, a locked room, bing, like that, was probably like, watch this. You know, <laughs> I'm going to get him. I don't know. That's my speculation. I would like to believe that he had a sense of humor. But he comes in. Bing, peace be with you. But he says this, and this is what I want to understand. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. Okay, you really only get this if you look at the Greek words, and I've studied the Greek words in this a, a decent amount because the New Testament was, was written in Greek. Um, as I also and I also send you, it literally means in the same way or manner. In the way that God has sent me, that's the way that I'm sending you. What has been done, what I did, you too will do. Does that make sense? What happened to me will happen to you. The things that I accomplish, you will accomplish likewise in the same manner, after the same pattern. Oh, no, wait a minute. Where have we heard that word pattern before? It was the first scripture that Mo God told Moses, do all things after this pattern. In Hebrews, this pattern, God sets, God likes patterns. How do you know if something is of God and how some, something's of the enemy? Does it break God's pattern or not? Well, how do you know his patterns? You walk with him and you know the word of God. In the same way, these patterns, pattern, pattern, pattern. In the same way that he sent me, I also send you. Okay. Isn't it interesting too? Why did Jesus have to be baptized when he never sinned? And he said to, he said to uh, John the Baptist, to fulfill all righteousness, righteousness, I need to do this. He set a pattern that we too follow. There's not one thing that he did that, he's, that, that he didn't do that he would ask us to do. Do you hear that? There's not one experience that we'd have to walk through that he didn't have to walk through. In all ways, he can relate to us. Right? In all ways, he was tempted. 
yet without sin. That's why he's a good savior. Amen. Right? Because he's not one that can't understand what we walk through and the troubles of this life because he walked through them all successfully, unlike us. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. After saying this, he what? He breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. I had to receive the Holy Spirit when I was consecrated and I had to go out to do the works that the Father had me to do. And now I'm going to do the same in likewise fashion, give you the Holy Spirit so that you too now can do the things that I'm telling you to do. I'm calling you to do in the same way. Flip a couple uh, pages over to 2 Corinthians, a couple or 40, <laughs> whatever it is for your Bible. Um, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 21 and 22. And I'm going to try to finish this up here quickly. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 21 and 22. This is where we begin to land the plane. And what's the reality? What's, what what is, is being accomplished and what God is showing us here? Verse 21. Now it is God who strengthens us together with you in Christ. And who has anointed us. He has also put the seal of on us and given us the Holy Spirit in our hearts as a down payment. As I, the Father has sent me, I also send you. And so here we find the pattern. Now God who strengthens us together with you in Christ, all that we do, all that G God, did, excuse me, Jesus did, he did under the direction of God the Father. And all that we do is under the direction of the mediator to the Father, who is Jesus. And both receive the Spirit. The Spirit's at work. There's God in three persons. There's God the Father, there's God the Son, that's Jesus, and there's God the Holy Spirit, all three, okay, all three. They're three persons, they have three personalities, they have, um, but they are one God. We call it the Trinity. God gave direction to the, uh, God the Father gave direction to the Son. God the, uh, God the Son, Jesus gives direction to us and both of it was through the Holy Spirit. Okay? God in Christ has anointed us. The anointing that we receive, we receive in Christ. And he has given us the Holy Spirit in our hearts as a down payment. Or if we said it a different way, as, a, as security, as proof that we are anointed. The Holy Spirit we receive is the proof that God has anointed us. And if God has anointed us, we have been called holy. We have been consecrated. Right? When we come to Jesus, when we repent and we are baptized, we are given the Holy Spirit. This is the anointing. If you come to Jesus, you have been anointed. Past tense. Past tense. If you come to Jesus, if you are a born-again disciple of Jesus Christ, you have received the Holy Spirit and you have been anointed. Past tense. 
You don't have to turn there because it's quick and, and, and short, but 1 John 2.20 says, but you have an anointing from the Holy One and all of you know the truth. The ESV reads it this way, which I like. But you have been anointed by the Holy One and you have all knowledge. Past tense. Past tense. If you have come to Christ, if you have repented of your sins, if you have been baptized with water, we're talking about, you receive the Holy Spirit as a down payment inside of you. That is the anointing. Do you know who that applies to and who it doesn't? Universal. All of us. All who have received the gift of salvation in Jesus Christ have received the Holy Spirit. Have, past tense, received the Holy Spirit. That is the anointing. Let me read one more for you. John, uh, 1 John 2, 27. It's actually in the same chapter. John, 1 John 2, 27. As for you, the anointing you received, past tense, from him remains in you. And you don't need anyone to teach you. Instead, his anointing, come on, it's all tied together. His anointing teaches you about all things and is true and is not a lie, just as it, it has taught you remain in him. We must realize that if anyone is born again, a born again disciple of Jesus Christ, he or she has received the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Now, wait a minute here. You remember where we started? Do you remember what we talked about first? Mm -hmm. The tabernacle. What was the purpose of the tabernacle? As spoken to Moses. He says, I need a dwelling place. I need a place that I can dwell among them. Do you remember that? That was the whole point. And the anointing oil that he gave very specific instructions on, how to, instructions on how to create, was used to anoint that place, to make it a holy place, a holy place that his presence would dwell, down to the plates and the utensils and the priests that would serve within it. He desires for, for him to dwell among us in a holy place. Now you gotta turn here with me. 1 Corinthians 3.16. We all know John 3.16, don't we? We got to start memorizing 1 Corinthians 3.16. John 3.16 talks about the availability of salvation to the whole world who believe in Christ. 1 uh, Corinthians 3.16 tells us what we get with that and what that really means. Not just forgiveness of sins. If that were all, that would be enough. But there's more. There's more. Come on, say there's more. There's, there is more. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, Don't you yourselves know that you are God's temple and that the Spirit of God lives in you? You know what? I think, I think that Paul asked that question for a very good reason. And I think if Paul was here today speaking to the majority of the Christian church today in every denomination, he would have to say this, ask the same question. Do you not know? Because we don't know. We don't realize it. We do not realize that we have become, through the Holy Spirit, through access of of the presence of God through Jesus' sacrifice that we now have access to the Father through him, the Holy Spirit actually lives in us. It's not, remember what Hebrew said. He goes, the, what was done in the past was a type, it was a foreshadowing of something to come that was so much better. In the Old Testament, the glory of God resided in a location in the center of what 
scholars believe was probably a couple million people surrounded around and not everybody was allowed to go in. Very few, only the priests and Moses were able to, allowed to go in. But it spoke of something greater, a better promise, Hebrews told us, right? What's the better promise? That the presence of the glory of God is not a place that we go into. The glory of God is something that goes into us. The presence of God. And that is our anointing. What does that mean about you? What is the reality of what that means for us? In the context of the, the anointing and the holiness of the Old Testament temple, tabernacle, right? What does that mean for us today? Can you look at your life and say that is holiness displayed? That is consecrated. No, come on. I'm challenging you on this. Think about the words that you say. Are they consecrated words? Are they holy? The actions that you do, the, thought, the thoughts you have, the road rage that you deal with, is it holy? Is it consecrated? How should we start thinking about ourselves? Paul here was so ecstatic about this point that he repeats himself, right? I'm going to read it again. Do not, uh, don't you yourselves know that you are God's temple and the Holy Spirit of God lives in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him for God's temple is holy. And that is what you are. You are holy because you've been what? Anointed. But he goes on in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, only a couple chapters over, verse 19 and 20. He says, don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? So he's saying the same thing, but a different way. He's specifically talking about our body, our flesh. We're talking about the Holy Spirit literally takes up residence in your flesh. That's the reality. That's why we can feel the Holy Spirit. That's why you can be reading your Bible and all of a sudden life jumps off the page. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is inside of you affecting your cognitive abilities to retain information and understand what he's doing. That's why he can bring healing to your physical body because he's actually in you and can do these things, right? This is what we're talking about. This is when you can walk into a, a situation and you, the Holy Spirit, because he's in your body, you can have the ability to know things or perceive things about people that they may not even know about themselves or they think is even uh, that no one knows about and you can perceive that. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is actually in your body and giving you the thoughts, able to give you the thoughts of the reality and the truth of what's happening in that circumstance. See, our trouble, we think that God, we're asking God to, for his Holy Spirit to come on us. That's Old Testament. The prophets, David, Solomon, Samson, the Holy Spirit would come on them. For the born-again disciple of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit is in them. We don't have to pray that the Holy Spirit comes on us. We have to pray that the Holy Spirit comes out of us. Amen. Better promises. Yes. Better promises, as Hebrews 8 talks us about. Right? Now, what does, that, what does that mean when we start talking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Is it a second thing that has to come on us? I say no. I say the baptism of the Holy Spirit is when the Holy Spirit comes out of us. When he floods us. That's the, because what's the word baptism mean? It means immersed. Yeah. 
It means to be like 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 water baptism. You're immersed underwater. The word baptism means immersion, completely surrounded in it, right? Completely surrounded in it. That's why we we don't we only dunk people underwater because that's the word immersion to be dunked, right? The Holy Spirit. The problem that we as Christians have is that we have got the Holy Spirit inside of us. We do, and that's good, and it's a precious down payment. But we haven't been immersed in the Spirit. We haven't allowed the Spirit to take over, to, to come out and manifest His power and presence because most of us don't even know that the Spirit's in us. And that's why Paul had to ask the question twice to this, the, the church in Corinth. Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought at a price. So glorify God with your body. Glorify God with your body. It's important to him. This is one of the reasons why the Bible talks so much about sexual sin. Because the Bible says that the sin, sexual sin is a sin against your own body. And your own body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. We have got to come to the revelation that we are God's anointed. If you are. If. It's conditional. If. You are a born-again disciple of Jesus Christ. If you are not a born-again disciple of Jesus Christ, you must first be born again. Mm-hmm. When Nicodemus, he was, he was one of the, the, the church leaders. He was a Pharisee. He came to Jesus, snuck out at night. Nick at night. He stuck out, snuck out at night because he didn't want anybody to see that he was going to talk to Jesus. And Jesus told him, you must be born again means the old life dies, the new life is resurrected, born a second time. You were born of the flesh before. We were all born of the flesh, but now we have to be born of the Spirit. That's what Jesus was teaching him. Be born of the Spirit. Be anointed, right, by the Spirit. Remember when I said that in the same way God sent Jesus, he sends us in the same pattern? Jesus was born of the Spirit. When did that happen? At his conception in Mary's belly. He was born of the Spirit. He was conceived of the Holy Spirit. We have to be conceived of the Holy Spirit. That's salvation. We then need to be baptized in the Spirit. Just the same way that Jesus was. At his baptism, water baptism, the Holy Spirit came on him in that way and released his power. It's easy for us to get caught up in the semantics. Does the Holy Spirit come on you at baptism? Does it come out of you? I say it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. What matters is is that you receive the Spirit and then you allow the Spirit to work in your life because you are God's anointed. The church of Jesus Christ has got to have this revelation. In the next couple weeks as we go through this, we're going to say, okay, what does that mean for us if we're truly God's anointed? What what happens now? And that's what we're going to get into. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that you have so chosen to bring Jesus to be the mediator between us and the Father to pay the penalty that we were unable to pay. He paid a debt that he did not owe. 
And we had a debt that we could not pay. And not only that, and that would be so good, but you have then so chosen to anoint us with your Holy Spirit, whom you call the Comforter. Why do we need a Comforter? Because this life is disturbing. And we're in situations all the time that are hard and uneasy. And we need a comforter that can give us peace, who can give us insight, who can give us direction, who can help us to make right decisions. But not only that, you give us purpose, consecrate us, set us aside for holiness. Jesus, I thank you that you said that your desire is for us to share. In fact, it was a command, share in my holiness, share in it. And not only that, you even go further and says, I'll share with you my glory. What great promises, better promises that you've given us than what you gave the Israelites all those years ago. Through Holy, through Holy Spirit, through Jesus. So I pray, oh God, that you give us the reality of what that means. Help us to see ourselves as your anointed. And as we lay ourselves before you, oh God, I pray that you do surgery on our hearts and on our minds. Don't let us to be conformed to the patterns of this world any longer, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds that we would know what the good, acceptable, and the perfect will of God is. Those things that you have called us to do. We are not in this life, oh God, to, to, to have uh, a, a nice little pink houses and white picket fences and, and uh, you know, and enjoy the, a nice, nice retirement. That is not what you have promised for us. That's not a right and it's not a goal for us to live in your kingdom and to do what you do. Oh, those things pale in comparison to the richness of the glory and the treasures of heaven that we are going to receive if we just pay this little price of laying our lives down and saying, God, consecrate me and use me for your glory and for your purposes because I am your anointed. You have anointed me and I am holy. Not in my own efforts, not in my own abilities, not in my own nature, but through the flawless sacrifice, atoning sacrifice of Jesus, can I stand before God, our Father, and say, I have been made whole. The slate has been made clean. I have been born again. And the blood of Jesus as a sacrifice has made me in right standing before you. I thank you, Lord, for your great sacrifice and I give you glory. Thank you for these brothers and sisters. Help us all to go deeper in you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 amen.